It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. We'll speak with a cancer survivor on the programme today and she will share her journey uh, with us. Also on the programme this morning, uh, Minister David Stanton is going to join us. Now we're going to in the main be talking about gambling. We have very outdated gambling laws in this country. I think everybody accepts they're outdated. There's been a need to update them for many, many years. I don't know why this hasn't been dealt with before and it's now come under the remit of Minister David uh, Stanton and there's great plans to finally update our gambling laws. So where we have David Stanton on the line, I'm obviously going to ask him because he's in the Department of Justice and it was the Department of Justice who made the decision yesterday to shelve the plans for the Direct Provision Centre in Ruski in uh, Limerick, in Leitrim. It was the disused Shannon Key West Hotel. It had been intended to open as a Direct Provision Centre and the plan was that it would house 80 asylum seekers Unfortunately, as they were getting the property ready to allow the eight asylum, the eighty asylum seekers to start living there, it unfortunately there was two arson attacks this year. So the Department of Justice they came out yesterday. We mentioned this towards the close of the program yesterday. They came out and said the decision to abandon the plans to house asylum seekers. They say it was made following legal advice from the Chief State Solicitor's Office. The Chief State Solicitor's Office, it seems, found some difficulties with the lease agreement between the owners of the hotel and the operator who would be renting it and then running it as a direct provision uh, centre. It said the decision was taken solely in relation to the difficulties with the, with the lease. So the Department of Adamant said this was nothing to do with the arson attacks on the hotel. But obviously a lot of other people are seeing it differently including I saw a quote from the Leitrim and Roscommon United Against Racism group. They said the decision would be seen as a victory for those who carried out the uh, attack. They say nobody apart from the government thought it was a good idea to house 80 asylum seekers in Ruski. However, they say it is uh, regrettable that the government appears to have backed down in the face of racist arson attacks and a very vocal hard right minority in the area. They say it'll be portrayed by the far right minority in the community as a victory and a victory for them. The arsonists, it's like we have won. I also uh, read in the papers today, Fianna Fáil's immigration spokeswoman Fiona O'Loughlin, she expressed concerns that the decision sends a message to the perpetrators of the arson of the, the attacks. She's also seeing it as, look, they have uh, won. 
um, and I know the immigration, the Migration and Refugee Rights Centre. They say if those who perpetrated the attacks on the hotel see this as a win, they then will, will they try and do the same thing in other areas that propose to have a centre? They will be extremely worried about that. And I have to say, it's one of the first things I thought of as well. If these, loon, I, and I call them lunatics, the lunatics on the, on the right who did not want for whatever, well, their own twisted reasons didn't want these asylum seekers to take up home in the hotel. So they decided, well, if we burn down the premises, they won't be able to move in. And if we keep burning it and they keep repairing it, you know, we'll just delay it and delay it and delay it and they'll eventually move along. So they'll certainly see yeah, what we did uh, was right. We have a win. And I would worry, I would be with the Migrant and Refugee Rights Centre the next time a property is mentioned as that's going to house asylum seekers and they're getting it ready and preparing it. Obviously work has to be done in order to make it suitable for asylum seekers. Will you then get other groups thinking, well, look what happened in Ruski. They they burned them out of the place almost. Will we decide to go down that route uh, as well? We'll speak with uh, David Stanton, Stanton and, and I'd be interested to see in here, does he have concerns along those lines uh, as well? Now, a driving instructor. Uh, is joining us on the programme sharing uh, his views and a possible solution to lessen the driving test waiting times. At the moment we have, it can be depending on what test centre you go to, uh, it can be 13, 15 weeks of a wait from when you apply for your driving test to when you actually get your driving test. Now, the RSA say in the ideal world, they reckon people should be waiting no longer than 10 weeks, even though some people would even say 10 weeks is too long to wait. And we all know there is now uh, an added dimension to people trying to get their full driver's licence because of the Clancy Amendment and the strict enforcement of not allowing learner drivers to drive unaccompanied. We're now seeing more people scrambling, desperately scrambling, to get their driving licence. But we also have an additional problem in this country besides we've long waiting times but the added problem is we have more people failing the test than passing the test. Now I'm very interested in speaking with a driving instructor as to why that has and is happening. I mean we have these mandatory 12 lessons that wasn't there before. It's part of the new system for the learner permit. You have to do your 12 lessons. I think you have to be had be on the road then driving on your your L plates for six months, you know, gaining a little bit of experience before you could pass your test. I would have assumed with the 12 mandatory lessons that that would have increased the chances of people passing their test because a lot of people were learning to drive by mammy and daddy. Now, a lot of mammies and daddies very successfully taught their sons and daughters to drive. I'm not faulting that. But you, you, there was a case of people being taught to drive by somebody who was maybe not giving them all of the correct instruction and then they were picking up bad habits and because they learned the wrong way, so to speak. And then when they went and did their test, all these bad habits came up and they, they failed their test. And we've heard of people who failed numerous times. Now, I know nerves... Can, can get can get at it as well. But looking at the test results for last year, 48% passed, which meant 52% failed. So the 52% that failed, if they were people who really needed to have their driving licence 
because they needed to be able to drive on their own. They were in a position that were going to college or they were taking up a job and there wasn't somebody to sit in the car with them. So they really needed to get that piece of paper. They really needed to get their full driver's licence. If they fail, if they're in the 52% that fail, they, I'm assuming apply immediately to go back on the waiting list and then pending on where they took their test can be waiting another 13 to 15 weeks. But it's almost like it's a vicious cycle that it's never ending because if you have a higher proportion failing than passing, they're all going back on the list again. And then you add to the people who have done their 12 lessons, they've done their six months, they're ready to take their test. There's a constant flow of people adding on to that list and we just don't seem to be getting anywhere with it. So I'm very interested to hear with anyone who has any kind of a a suggestion that might work and that's what we're uh, hoping to do uh, today. And then, of course, as we pointed out when we were talking about this yesterday, we were talking about the number of people with UK driver's licence who are scrambling very quickly to get an Irish driver's licence for fear that the UK are going to crash out of Brexit and, you know, looking at what's coming out of the Houses of Commons and what's coming out of Europe and the EU last night. We're getting very closer to crash and burn when it comes to Brexit. Anyway, with that in mind, people are being encouraged to change, change surrender their UK licence and get a, an Irish driver's licence instead. And a huge number of people uh, are doing that. And that then led to a discussion yesterday on people who have learned to drive in other countries and then they come to live in this country or else they come back to live in this country. They could have been Irish people who went abroad to work or went to America to work. America was one of the countries we mentioned. And they took their driving test over there. They drove on the roads of the United States for many, many years. And when they come back, they discover no The Irish system doesn't recognise a United States licence and there's a whole host of other countries as well. And it means you must become a learner driver and start at the very beginning all over again, the very same way as a 17, 18 year old would do. You must take the mandatory 12 lessons. You must wait the six months before you can apply for for your test while you have your L plates up, even though, you know, Technically, you could have been driving for 30 years and never had an accident. And if you were a very good driver, you could have been a driving licence instructor in America. That won't make a difference. You need to go back to basics. So those people, obviously, are also in the list of people trying to get driving tests. Now, we assume that they pass first time, but they're still in that list. They're adding to that list of people who are and that list getting longer and uh, longer. So we were talking about that and some people thought it was a bit ridiculous that they really need to look at the rules of people coming from other countries with a full licence the ones that are outside the recognised list like everybody in the EU and there's certain other countries Australia is recognised Canada is recognised South Africa is recognised but yet as we heard yesterday Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe isn't recognised anyway listener says thank you so much for highlighting the awful predicament of some drivers who have obtained their licences while living abroad it's unbelievable that a person who has driven all of their adult life now must be subjected to the stress and expense there is expense I forgot to mention that of applying for an Irish driving licence all over again. Most of these adults will need to have a fully licensed driver accompany them every time they take their car uh, out when they're driving on their L plates. It will make getting to and from work, dropping children to and off school almost impossible. Maybe the rules could be revised to require mature, fully licensed drivers who got their licence from another country, to be retested when swapping their foreign licence without being subjected to all of the other usual conditions and criteria for a learner driver again. 
Yes, absolutely. That would make that would make the most common sense. If you can go in and prove, yes, I have a licence, maybe they test differently in the other countries. I'm assuming that's one of the reasons that we don't recognise it. But give, give those people a chance if they've been driving for, you know, many, many years. Give them a chance. Allow them to apply for their test immediately based on the fact that they have been driving most of their adult life. And if they fail the first time, then maybe say, OK, we've given you your chance, one strike and you're out. Now you're back to basics. You must go through all the all the criteria of a learner uh, driver. That would make sense, but I, I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. 1850-333-103. Uh, John Paul, taking your calls. We'll also go to the movies with Mark Malone later on in the programme. And Joseph Berm, that wonderful, generous, kind hairdresser in Glasheen in the city, joins us. He's collecting Easter eggs again. And Mary has just sent in a text saying, would you please include the Boerbui ICA coffee morning on your list there, Patricia? It started at 10 o'clock this morning and they're serving teas and coffees and they're ICA ladies so there'll be beautiful buns in Boerbui and that's in aid of Daffodil Day. Now the Cabinet has approved the establishment of an independent regulator to update decades old gambling laws which were described by the Taoiseach himself as quite out of date. To discuss the Gaming and Lotteries Amendment Bill 2019 I'm joined by Corky's Minister of State with Responsibility for Gambling and that is uh, David Stanton. Good morning to you David. Good morning Patricia. Uh, and you're welcome to the programme. Before we talk about uh, the gambling. I, I have to ask you about what happened yesterday with the Department of Justice shelving the plans for the Direct Provision Centre in uh, Ruski in Limerick. I mean, some of the groups who are working against racism are seeing it as a victory for those who carried out the arson attacks. Well, that's, that's, that's unfortunate, but that's not true. Um, what happened was there was an issue, a problem with the lease, and we tried everything to resolve it. The Chief State Solicitor's Office eventually advised the department that it wouldn't be possible to resolve the issue and uh, advised that it was not possible to go ahead with it. Um, We possibly could have put some people in there for a period of time. There was always a huge risk that um, we'd have to take them out again in a few weeks and that would be very disruptive. So on the strong advice of the Chief State Solicitor's Office, um, the decision was taken not to proceed because of a lease issue. But the fact that there had been two arson attacks uh, this year were you worried for the asylum seekers that if they had moved in? Uh, yeah, that's every every right-minded person in the country has condemned those attacks, uh, and you know there is there is a very small element out there who um, stoop to that kind of terrible criminal behaviour. And I would be concerned, obviously, and, and concerned for not just uh, asylum seekers, but staff that might be working there, and even the security people who were there at the time. Luckily, no one was hurt or injured. Uh, but yes, that that uh, behaviour is, is reprehensible and should be condemned out of hand. And is that un- unusual? I mean, in, in most areas, are people welcoming of asylum seekers? <laughs> yeah, what's happening at the moment, Patricia, is we have... Um, you know, even the other day, now we had 40 people applied for asylum here, um, and the number is increasing all the time. Uh, when somebody applies for asylum, um, we, we initially ask them, have you somewhere to stay? They may have friends or relations in the country. It might be able to make their own provisions as well, but if they can't, what we do then is we're obliged to offer them accommodation. And we really are under pressure at the moment all over the country for accommodation. We've over 6,000 people at the moment in accommodation centres. Um, the alternative, unfortunately, is being on the street, and we, nobody wants that. So we are trying our best to uh, locate asylum centres for people. 
until we can, until the officials can um, decide on their application, whether or not they have a, a valid application for asylum. Uh, at the moment, we have over 700 people in asylum centres, in these centres, that have that, that the state has decided, yes, they can stay here, they have a valid case for asylum, we can find accommodation for them. And on top of that, we also have committed to taking a relatively small number of refugees uh, from the Syrian crisis. Now, the state the government decided to take in 4,000 overall. At the moment, we've taken about 2,500, um, and we're working hard to try and accommodate the rest. Um, they're at the moment in awful conditions in camps in Lebanon. I recently launched um, a new scheme called the Private Community Sponsorship, and um, the way that works is as a town or a village or a community would decide, uh, look, we, we would like to do something for a family, uh, a, a Syrian family, and they locate a house in their area, uh, they furnish it, they make it available, they get some training as well, and then the family uh, is taken from the camp in Lebanon into Dublin airport and go straight to the community. So that's private community sponsorship. And if any of your listeners out there would like more information on that, please contact the Department of Justice. Um, Pope Francis himself has actually asked every parish in the in the country to take one family. And if every parish did that, I, I think we'd be doing we'd be doing a lot. Now we have already um, one group in Dunchockton, one family in Dunchockton. I visited them, a lovely, lovely family from Syria, beautiful people, and the, the community there have welcomed them with open arms and are supporting them and helping them, and they're settling in extremely well. And now they want to get jobs, and they talk to themselves, we want to give back to this country, we want, we want to work, and they and they will. Yeah, and it's a real success story. I was reading about it on the paper. Yeah, it's it's worked out house. really well. I visited them in their house, I met them, and there's also a group in Lismore who are actually actively working to do something similar. I know in Carrickdool there's a group who are working to do the same thing, and in Middleton. So this 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 is a, a proposal that's uh, in train in Canada for quite a number of decades. They also have it working in Manchester and in London. I went over there to meet people to see how they were getting on, and again, it was very impressive. And the people who said to me that of all the things they ever did in their lives, this gave them the most satisfaction of all, helping somebody who was in dire straits to start fresh. And it would get rid of the need for the asylum centres. It would be yeah. well. These are refugees which are slightly... Uh, yeah, of course, yeah. So it would certainly ensure that we would, they wouldn't have to be housed in uh, emergency accommodation yeah. for a okay. period of time. So again, if there are any of your listeners out there who want information on that, I mean, if one town or one village took on one family, um, and what we're looking for are houses that wouldn't normally be available, so we're not displacing somebody who who would be on the housing list, for instance. This is over and above that again. How what's happened is, in, in many of the communities that this is in operation, they find that someone has a private house somewhere. And in some cases, some people have come forward in, in England, and they say, look, we'll make this available on a very nominal fee. Now, there's a bit of work involved in setting it up because we have to ensure, obviously, that the people are properly prepared, that, you know, that they know if, there's, if their issues arise, they know how to do and where to go. But I can tell you the, the people I've seen and I've met that have kind of come through this system, both here and in the UK, are really and truly delighted with it. And the people operating the system are thrilled as well. OK, and just but just on the asylum seeker issue for a sec, the, is the process, is, have you speeded up the process in any way or is it still taking so long? Yeah, we've increased the number of staff substantially, I think almost almost double the number of staff in there. Uh, the number of asylum seekers is increasing, um, uh, but we have, and the, the amount of time people are now in these centres waiting for um, 
a decision has gone down a lot. Uh, however, we still have people who sometimes when they are given a decision, and now we have a single application. Previously, there were three ways somebody could apply for asylum, and, and, and they were con- consecutive. If, if they didn't get it the first time, they could apply a second time and a third time under different uh, headings. But we've all put that now into one single application procedure. But they can still go into the court and get a judicial review. And that can actually <clears throat> delay the final, final decision. Uh, at that stage, if they're told, look, you, you know, your application has failed, they're, they're obliged to leave the country. And there is an international fund um, which can actually pay their airfares back to where they come from. Uh, so that's all That's all there. But it is a huge challenge for us. And the accommodation bit is now really pinching very, very hard. Uh, and we are working as hard as we can. We have uh, Peter McVeary Trust and DePaul and others working trying to locate accommodation across the country for uh, asylum seekers in particular who have status here and who can stay here. Also, as you know, last year we decided to um, uh, allow asylum seekers to work if they're here for nine months without their case being determined. They can now actually work in the labour market and quite a lot of them have applied for that and are getting jobs and and that's something we're encouraging as well. Yeah, well I know mental health issues was and a lot of that was was by boredom because they were sitting there doing nothing. People wanted to work. They did and and that's something that we've we've done now. The other thing we've also done is a lot of the centres now have self-catering self-catering accommodation so they can cook their own foods and kind of have family time like, like a normal family would and they can cook the food they're like themselves because some people come from cultures that have slightly different menus actually some of the food is really delicious as well by the way and they're, they're great cooks uh, so there, there's all that and we're again we're you know, dealing with education issues and um, English language for people can be a problem um, children learn it very quickly adults a bit slower um, depending on where they come from of course and then we have to also be cognizant of different cultures where they come from as well and they have to also because it's a two way process they have to take account of our cultures here too we have a migrant integration strategy and I more I chair that board that working group with all the state agencies government departments and the NGOs are all around the table as well so we're we're looking at the needs okay. of migrants and trying to ensure that we have inclusion and integration in the in the country. We don't want a situation as has happened in other countries where migrants ended up being kind of excluded, if you will, and then having a situation where you know you'd have trouble and and, and antisocial behaviour and you know feelings of not being welcomed and so forth and you know concerns on all sides. Because my experience is when people get to know each other. Uh, you know, people come to me and they say, you're not doing enough for these people, we need to do more. Sometimes we open a centre in a, in a town or a village and um, initially there's a lot of concern, but eventually when people uh, just meet the people that are there, the local people meet the new people, they, they, they really help them. And um, we also establish friends of the centres in all these places. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and that's witnessed here in Cork, you can see oh, some yeah, of the yeah. asylum centres. And in many instances, um, in a few instances, in fact, the management of these centres have to say to the local people, please stop handing in gifts and presents to the, to the asylum seekers. We can't handle it. We can't <laughs> take anymore. Yeah. So the vast, vast majority of people are very caring and, 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 and want to help. But the community sponsorship model, private community sponsorship, might be a way that communities could get together. It could be a sporting club. It could be a parish. It could be any community. Come together, a community council and say, look, we want to do our bit. It's going to be one family in our town or village, and we'll, we'll find a house that someone owns, and we'll, we'll approach that person, and we'll do it up, and there'll be a tenancy agreement put in place and all that, and, and then we'll, uh, we, we'll, we'll do some training, and eventually, when we're ready, a family will arrive, and we'll make them welcome. Okay. All right, let me get back to the issue that we invited you on, which is to do with uh, gambling. Say, yeah? can, I, can I just say one other thing about the fire thing, as you brought it up earlier on? Um, 
that had no bearing whatsoever on the decision made by okay. the department. And I would be, I'm, I'm concerned that some people think it might might have a, might have been a bearing. It hadn't absolutely no bearing okay. whatsoever. We were going ahead, but eventually we, we had to stop because of that decision. Okay, come back to gambling. Yeah. Is underage gambling one of your biggest concerns? Uh, it is one of them, and uh, I published a piece of legislation the other day which will uh, outlaw underage gambling in all circumstances. Uh, no loopholes, no exposures or maybes. It's in the legislation, and that's it, including the tote, by the way. Including the tote. Yeah. Okay. And do do you believe we have a problem with gambling in this in this country? I mean, it, 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 it's such a hidden addiction. Well, there are a whole lot of different facets to it. And as one of my officials said to me one day, every time you go at this and you, you pull a string, you get there are 10 more strings behind it. Um, it's extremely complicated. Um, a lot of people gamble. The vast majority of people gamble. That, that who, who gamble, look, it's, they, they can walk away. It's entertainment. It's not an issue for them. They enjoy it and so forth. And it's an activity they, they like doing. A small number of people, about 0.8%, I think, in some recent survey that was done in the country, can have a, what they call a problem be problem gamblers or compulsive gamblers or impulsive gamblers. Now, that that's an addiction, as you said, and that, in fact, falls under the health issue. It's a health issue. And people with addiction problems need to get treatment and they need to possibly go into therapy and so forth to try and deal with it as any addiction. Uh, but it is a huge issue and, and it's something that you know government is very concerned about. That's why we, we, we spent a lot of time now looking at the whole the whole gambling uh, regulation issue. We It hasn't been uh, legislated for since, properly since 1956. Um, a number of years ago, Alan Chatter produced the heads of a bill, not a full bill itself. I was chair of the committee at the time. We did some work on it, but nothing happened. And about two years ago, I was given responsibility. I had a look at it. That time, they wanted to set up an office in the Department of Justice. But I did some work on it, and I discovered that across the OECD countries, <laughs> this is such a huge issue that it needs a totally independent regulator. Now, the, the industry itself, we reckon, is worth between six and eight billion a year. So it's huge. And it's also very complex because a lot of it is going online now as well. Yeah. And people can gamble away on their mobile phones at three o'clock in the morning. So it's not the, just the issue of walking to a bookie shop. It's not It's not the arcades and, and the gaming machines. A lot of it is going online. The issue of advertising has to be looked at as well and promotions and sponsorship and, and the role of that. Um, you know, so we published, we did a lot of work on the report in the last year, all government departments that were involved in other agencies. I chaired that particular bit of work and I published the report there this week. Um, it's online if you, if you, if you, if you want to see and, it. And what about, about, about the way that gambling permits and licence are issued? Are you going to change the way that's done? Yeah, the regulator will have full control of all of that. Um, all licensing, uh, vetting, enforcing, inspecting. All that, and that's what happened in what's happened in the UK now. They have a gambling commission over there for quite a bit. So we want to, and as I say, most almost all other countries that we looked at have something similar. We want to do the same. So all licensing, um, all applications will all go to the regulator, who will set standards, who will have the power to inspect, who will have the power to sanction and, and impose fines and so on. So it's a pretty big job. We reckon there'll be about up to a hundred people working in this office. How will it be funded? Yes, um, the the. The um, industry will eventually um, ensure that this will be self-funded through levies and fines and so on. Okay. Uh, that's the so it won't be an ongoing. But the, the initial setup costs will have to be borne by the exchequer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and how soon do you hope to see the regulator in place? Well, we published the report this week. What we have to do now, and what we're, what we're working at the moment, is is drafting the heads of a bill to to make it happen. At the, in tandem with that, we we have a bit of work going on to to 
kind of scope out exactly the, the what the regulator's office will look like, um, how many sections will be there, what different people will be doing and all that kind of stuff. So we've got some funding from the European Union to do a bit of work on that. I'm hoping to that ready by May. And then um, this uh, the regulator itself, we have to, as I say, publish the uh, heads of a bill, which has to be vetted in by the Oireachtas Committee. Then the bill itself is published and has to go through the Oireachtas. And in tandem with that, we'll be working to set up the regulator's office at the same time. It's difficult to know. I mean, you know, legislation going through the Oireachtas can be slow. And also, um, drafting legislation is a very tedious job, especially this kind of stuff. Because it's very, will, very you, will you have a lot of opposition from the gambling industry? I mean, if you say they're worth so much money... They have a lot of financial power behind them. No, funny thing, um, most of the of the of the operators that have been in contact with the department are in favour of regulation and want it, and and they they want they want fair regulation. Um, they don't like to be operating in this kind of grey area either. So they they have been in contact, and any of the commentators I've heard have said they want regulation. They okay. will come. In fact, they are putting pressure on, on us to bring this forward as well. Someone wants to know what about the new casino proposed in uh, Mitchellstown? I mean, whenever there is a, an arcade or a casino mentioned in a town, nobody seems to want it. Yeah, um, and I suppose on the other side of the coin, then if if it wasn't um, if it wasn't profitable and uh, it wouldn't it, it, it wouldn't happen, so people must be actually going there to to, to, to use the things. Um, the there was a planning issue involved, first of all, with some with these uh, change of use and planning and so on, which is a local authority matter. But at the end of the day, our, our um, recommendation is that the authority will control all these things. And we have to make sure as well that all gambling and betting and bingo and lotteries and the whole lot, that they're fair um, to the punter. So that when you go in and you, you, you place a bet, that you know that if, if, if the odds are such and such that they are such and such uh, sponsorship is another one the advertising promotions that we're, we're, we're looking at as well and also a piece of legislation I published has to do with very very small lotteries and, and community lotteries that sports clubs run and kind of clarifying how permits and licenses are issued for those so it's a vast vast area but it's very very complicated OK uh, we will uh, follow this one with interest uh, David in the meantime thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme Anytime thank uh, you Thank you bye bye That is uh, Minister uh, for State uh, David Stanton for Corky State Team 50 333 Lines open Text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103 Laura Gaelga RC 103 Back Yul Toy Rap August Ashore 2 Pack Sakur 2 Pack in Nua Arok Vibwint Moor Ega Hismohori Savaktas Mkerta Savilta Dogwini Gurma Iverka August Ka Avahar Trevsha Ibrazunfu August Ieg Umper Tupac Kuga Kura Gumur Ivaim Er Tupac August Hustig She E Kumakul In Nedog Octosat Hiol She Kuig Album Kul August E in a Vahig For She Boss Er and True Law Deog Devan For Nedog Nokshe Ogs e cuig vlinas vea. Le brewer guelga is misha abini vinicon o guelskol hamostavish maala. CKD asa 3 Kirkig. 
The River Lee and The Echo bring you the Cork City Sports Athletics Award. Athletics Award. Every month, a panel of sporting experts will give recognition to an outstanding Cork athlete. Cork athlete. The latest award winner is Alex Wright from Leavale AC for winning two international walk titles, the Andalusia 10K and the indoor 5,000 metres in Bratislava. The Cork City Sports Athletics Award with the River Lee and The Echo and C103. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. A lot of reaction on the phones to my piece with the junior minister at the Department of Justice, um, David Stanton. I brought David on to talk about gambling, but obviously I couldn't let the moment pass without mentioning what happened in Ruski in Leitrim because that falls in under his uh, remit and under his department. So we ended up talking about direct provision and asylum seekers. But he also touched on refugees, which are different to asylum seekers. I mean, the provision centre in Ruski was for asylum seekers wasn't it it wasn't for refugees anyway John O'Donovan was on to say there are, this is about uh, what happened in Ruski the fact that there was arson attack on this particular hotel and some people are saying that by now now the department are adamant and David was adamant that it had nothing to do with the arson attack there were some difficulties they discovered with the lease agreement and that's why they're, they've shelved the plans for the direct provision centre but people in the area are saying this is almost giving the nod to the people, victory to those who carried out the arson attacks. It's almost like saying to them, well done, you won in what you were trying to achieve. John said, there, uh, there is no consultation with the local people and that's why trouble brews. Why are David Stanton's department not discussing with the local people when they decide on a location for a direct provision uh, centre? Uh, people are going to get upset when it just lands in their local community when they didn't know in advance it was going to happen. I also saw an ad on TV last night saying direct provision centres need to close. But when you cannot rent houses in large areas of Cork at the moment, where do you expect these people to go? If you house people from direct provision centres, ahead of Irish people who are already homeless are trying to get secure accommodation then all you're going to do is create more racism in society Uh, that is certainly not going to work Ursula in Mallow said our direct provision centres our direct provision centres are unfair. Having people left inside in these centres for many years, many of them under curfew, we need to do something about them. Irene and Balancholic, I agree that these direct provision centres need to close. Firstly, it's wrong on the people who come to this country, but it's also wrong on the community where these centres are. Not all communities want an influx of people from different countries into their area. They don't know the history of these people. Yes, they may, many may have suffered many may have suffered because of war uh, but just dumping these people into rural communities is wrong and it will and does cause problems. It's hard enough for people moving into a rural area to settle in uh, in to mind doing what the government, not to mind doing what the government are doing, they need to think before landing these facilities and when they mean landing I think she means opening direct provision centres particularly near small villages and in rural areas. And Jerry in Middleton says I think Ireland is too small a country to take in the amount of refugees and asylum seekers that we are taking in. Yes, I've no problem taking in a certain few uh, but do it as per head of our population. Look at our country. We've under 5 million people. We're smaller in size than uh, some of the cities in the United Kingdom yet we're bringing in these people at a time when we can't house our own not to mind housing people coming in from other countries. We need to shout stop 
at some stage. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Stephen. Uh, and listening to us in Kerry by text uh, says read the licence thing this is to do with the UK uh, licence uh, Patricia as ever this has nothing to do with road safety it's just another example says Stephen of a bit of a farce if a UK driver is safe enough in adverted commas to drive in Ireland now then obviously they're safe enough to drive after the UK exits the union why the rush to get them to change their licence and as regards the test and people failing the test what are all the lessons for and how much do they cost these are the 12 compulsory lessons that learner drivers must must take what are they for if 52% are still failing the driving test finally how come there's been an increase in road fatalities since the Clancy amendment came in maybe we should review our thinking on road safety says uh, Stephen now I don't know if it's anything to do with the Clancy amendment I mean ideally the Clancy amendment is going to make our roads safer but Stephen you are right and the worrying news is there has been a 30% rise in the number of road deaths so far this year. I mean only last weekend and I remember last Friday being on there saying wouldn't it be great if we had a bank holiday weekend without any road fatalities and unfortunately that wasn't the case. There was five people uh, lost their lives on our roads last uh, weekend uh, and, there, and also uh, added to that uh, equally worrying 164 drivers were arrested on suspicion of drink and our drug driving over the bank holiday weekend. Seven 74 of them were arrested on St. Patrick's Day itself and I know 11 of them were arrested between 8 in the morning and 11 in the morning on St. Patrick's Day. So that was obviously people that had been out the night before, thought they were okay to drive the next morning and 11 of them discovered they weren't and they were arrested on suspicion of uh, drink uh, driving. 1850 Let me go to the phone lines. Tom and Balancholic uh, joins me. This is a road safety issue as well. Um, good morning to you, Tom. Come on, Patricia. Tom, How are you? I, I'm I'm very well. There is a particular area in Ballincollig. Th- this is a road safety issue, really. That you're it's you're. A, it means uh, road safety issue because um, it's 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 dangerous up there. Not the minister. It's it's, it's called uh, Magnum Bridge up to Jimmy's Cross. It would be a road a back road to Ballinhasig. Yeah. Right. But there's a branch of a tree hanging down over the road at the minute. Now, Balancali coaches, uh, I work for Balancali coaches, and they're they're uh, operating three buses for school runs there every morning and evening. And the buses are at the incorrect side of the road to avoid this. And there's going to be a major accident there if something is not going to be done about it. And the road itself, like, is not in a great condition. It's a bad road all the way up, overgrown branches and potholes and you name it. Now, the council has been informed about it. The bus airman has been informed about it. You know, but nothing has been done to the And the particular branch that you're talking about is is that a recent thing? Is is it was a storm da- thing, yeah. it's it's sto- is it is it storm damage or something? I don't know, it just came down it just came down it was it came down on yesterday it was it came down on Wednesday night. Yeah. It's it's hanging down very much. But I'd say like it was after breaking away before that, but now it's after getting lower and lower to the ground like yeah. it's dangerous. Yeah, you see, what can happen is that a previous storm it gets damaged, and then another storm it gets damaged, and then a small wind will will knock it down or or make it into the into dangerously hanging uh, the way it is at the moment. Um, and and well, you, you say it has been reported. I mean, that needs it, to be removed. Has, yeah, it has been reported. Yeah, it is. It has okay. been, the, the boss man himself actually reported it, but 
but uh, it, there were supposed to cut it yesterday but it's still there this morning OK we'll get John Paul to, to send an email off to the council just to even if they can give us any update on when they're going go, are going to do it but the, but the problem with something like this what you're highlighting is that a bus or a truck has to go out to the other side of the road to the incorrect side of the road just to, to overtake like to, to come down to, to avoid that yeah. It's a big windscreen in the bus and if you hit the windscreen like it's going to go down and that's it. You know? And a bus and that you've bus. got a load of children on. Yeah, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's children they can, you know, they're all about health and safety but there's nothing being done yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thanks for highlighting it, uh, Tom. Before you go there, we also have a problem here in Ballin College with the traffic lights. Yeah. The signals are way out. The, no, I was on myself about it, and I was told that the, the sensors are in trouble. Now, this was before Christmas, but they're causing a backlog of traffic in the evening, morning and evenings, with schools and everything happening. Um, back to the Enniscarra Bridge because they're slower changing. And the traffic is out the building up, then you have a volume of traffic going down to the bridge and coming back from the bridge. You know? So but it's the sequencing of the lights is wrong, it's is the it? The sequencing of the lights is out, completely out. And who told you there was something wrong with the sensor? Well, I was on, I was on to the, one of the lads in the council, and he told me they had been on to the, the authorities that were dealing with the, with the traffic lights, and they said they have to renew the sensors. Oh, for God's sake. And, the, and those things can be. So slow to get sorted out. Yes, but Patricia, again, the safety issue. Yesterday, I was going down yesterday, and um, the green man, the green light was lighting for a pedestrian to cross the road, but yeah. I had a green light to go on as well, oh. which is the interest light. Is that they're not working in sequence at all. Now that's whatever about when the sequencing goes wrong and the lights take too long to change and that just becomes a frustration issue but Mm -hmm. to say that the green man is on and a green light is on for the traffic or the people the people crossing the road but the green light is on for the traffic as well that would be about 3.30 yesterday evening and have you seen that happen before? I have I have seen it several times wow that's that is a real real safety issue all right, listen, thanks for highlighting it, Tom. No problem. And uh, thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. That's Tom joining us in Ballancolic, 1850-333-103. Let me go back to gambling and the issue that we spoke to uh, the Minister for State who's responsible for gambling, uh, David Stanton, in the last hour. And he says, I'm delighted to hear that the government are trying to do something about gambling. It nearly destroyed my family because of bookies and then slot machines and more recently online mobile gambling. After one family member recovered, it's a welcome move. Oh, you've had one family member recover. Let's hope uh, more uh, recover. It can be a real hidden addiction. And sometimes when the it's only when a family finds out that somebody has, is addicted to gambling and then they discover the amount of money that they owe. People have lost houses. It's just people have lost jobs. Um, people have stolen money. I mean, you know, the, the interview we did with the gentleman, Tony, Tony Ten, uh, his story about the, all the money he robbed from, uh, on post, he went to jail 
uh, over it but he was just that was an incredible book how gambling just took over his life somebody who had never been involved in gambling had been involved with gambling as a young person he was in his 20s I think when he placed his first bet but it just literally got a grip on him and took over his life Uh, Ger says are the arcades still going to remain open in towns and cities when this new regulator comes in well the regulator will be overseeing all of those uh, arcades and casinos that's the, the, the one thing that certainly is going to come out when this new regulator is put in place uh, Ger says I see so many people going in and playing slot machines people who should not even be in these places also Ger feels there should be training for the staff working in these centres a little bit like the way bar staff are trained in bars trained to stop people when they're drinking too much he feels the same should be done for people who are working in casinos and in arcades and there's another um texting on gambling uh, no name on this says morning Patricia last week when Cheltenham was on a fella I know happened to see his son and his friends they're all college students all on their phones and thinking that something had happened because they were all intentionally watching their phones he went over to ask them is everything okay it turned out that the group of lads were all betting online poor kids they really have absolutely no idea just how dangerous it can be and how easily they can get sucked in to something like this. It is truly, truly uh, frightening. And back to uh, the provision centres and asylum seekers. Heidi says, Patricia, something that you have, that we have here in this country is that we can speak our mind uh, on who you want to come in here, who you want to come into this country. My brother lives in the United Kingdom and you dare not say a word or you're classed as racist. There's trouble in Greece, in Italy, in Malta and in Germany because of people coming from other countries uh, across Europe and moving into these countries. And we have to see how the face of Europe will change post-Brexit. All have a right, everyone has a right to a better life, but it cannot be at the expense of the indigenous people. So says uh, Heidi by uh, text and that's by uh, WhatsApp. I think that's all of our and also in direct provision. Liam in Mitchell's chances, no matter what people say about the burning of the hotel in Ruski, once a direct provision centre is planned now for any location, there will be trouble in the future as they think if they damage the centre, then People will quote Ruski and say, if we burn it and keep continuously burning it, then they won't come here. Uh, No one is going to offer buildings as no owner will want their building damaged. Perception will make people think it did not go ahead in Leitrim because of the arson attacks. Even though listening to David Stanton and the Department of Justice, they are adamant that the arson attack had absolutely nothing at all to do with the decision to shelve the plans for the direct provision centre in Ruski. They say it was to do with the uh, lease. And Frank Imbandon says, if we travel to Australia, we need so much in our bank account before we do anything in that country. So should we have something similar in this country? We have our own people dying on the streets, homeless. So why not look after our own first before looking after everybody else? OK, well, the answer to that is on the people going into the direct provision centres, they are... Asylum seekers, they turn up in the country. I mean, was it was it 40, the figure that David Stanton said looked for asylum seeking asylum, looked for asylum in this country this week. So that means 40 new asylum seekers 
gained entry to, the, to this country. So those people need to be housed. Now, when he's talking about the refugees from Syria, they are people who are escaping war-torn situations and they need to be accommodated. Most refugees just need to be accommodated for a period of time while there's trouble going on in their country. Their hope would always be to return home uh, eventually. And I think people confuse the two. I mean, the refugee situation, I think it's 4,000 Syrians we've agreed uh, to take. We've come nowhere close to taking that uh, yet. But that's why the scheme that David Stanton spoke about, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get individual communities communities to say, yes, we will house a Syrian family in our community. And everybody gets involved. And kind of like a committee is set up uh, to welcome the the people and make sure that they're okay uh, while they're living in the area. But that's refugees very different to asylum seekers so it isn't a case like Frank I know what you're saying about Australia if you're going to live and work in Australia if you're going out there on some kind of a visa very strict rules and uh, regulations but the people who are coming here to seek asylum is very different they're coming because they're they're claiming that they are fleeing some kind of persecution and that's when they go into the asylum process and then we try to work out are they telling the truth uh, or not 1850-333-103 lines open C103 Jobs Vodafone in Bandon and in Clonakilty they're expanding their sales team so they're looking full for their full and part-time roles uh, available a bus driver is wanted in the McCroom area full clean driver's licence essential a painter is required for the North Cork area full clean driver's licence and Mallow Community Childcare are looking for a full-time childcare assistant and room leader for an immediate uh, start You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. And of course, as soon as you mention an area where there's potholes or overhanging ditches, like what Tom was talking about in Balancolic, you'll get other people straight away on the phone saying, well, while you're there, highlighting an area, will you mention this one? Mary says, Copine and Crookstown Cross very large potholes they're actually causing damage to vehicles Amaris by text saying dishes and bushes are very bad in Farron and Arda in Ahada what what harm but one landowner actually has his own hedge cutter but he only cuts the area near to his own house says uh, Morris by text to 0862 103 103 now earlier this year the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar acknowledged that driving test waiting times are too long and with the clampdown on learner drivers driving unaccompanied the need to take and pass the test has become more important than ever Carl O'Keeney is a driving instructor and he's come up with some solutions that might liberalise the current system and he joins us to share his views. Good morning to you, Cahal. Good morning, Patricia. And How are you? I'm very well. Now, firstly, more than half fail the test every year. As a driving instructor, why do you think that's the case? Because it's, uh, a lot of people have a kind of a delusional idea as to how good they are and they're putting themselves in for test without... Uh, getting any proper assessment. And then those people that fail, the 52% that fail, they then go back on to the waiting list for a test. So it just makes the list longer and longer. Just fouling up the system all over again. Now you've come up with what I think is a rather clever suggestion which would allow learner drivers drive unaccompanied up to their test date. Just explain your thinking. Right, well my theory is that uh, as an instructor and, and my fellow instructors 
would all concur with this because we've spoken at length, you know, waiting around test centres and that. I mean, we're, we are all qualified. We've all got through very rigorous uh, training, uh, both here in England and various places. And, you know, I believe that I am as qualified to assess somebody to allow them to drive safely for life as a, a standard tester. So if they had, just before they booked their test, an assessment with an instructor and given a certificate to certify that they are ready for test, and then and only then should they book a test. Okay. And the advantage of that would be that, uh, as I said in, in maybe the letter I saw I sent in to you, like we've had many, many people who've, who've done multiple tests. I'm talking 10s and 11s. They're fouling up the system because they're failing and failing and failing. And they're not ready for tests. They think they are. And they don't know what the standard is. So they should come to an, an instructor and, uh, you know, take the lesson with them. So you're, the you're, what you're talking about is, is pre-vetting. Exactly. It's almost it was, like they would do a mini test. Correct. With, if you were bringing your car in for NCT, most people send it into a garage to get it pre-tested. And would you always know the people who are going to pass and the people who are going to fail? I could guess fairly accurately. First of all, my own very quick history is uh, I've just come back from, well, when I say come back four years ago, from the UK where I actually qualified as an instructor in 2002. And our pass rate over there was about 80 to 85%. The national average here in Ireland is 50%. So, yes, I would know fairly accurately if a person was going to pass or fail. Now, the problem with the long delay is I can't predict 10, 12 weeks in advance. In other words, if I bring a student to a particular standard, say he does 10, 12, 14 lessons with me, then he asks me, will I book a test? Well, knowing that the test time is going to be 10 or 11 weeks away, I can say, well, look, based on your progress so far, yes, you possibly can book a test. But then what happens is that as soon as they're gone from you, then they mightn't book another lesson for you for three, four, five weeks. Then they ring you a week before the test and they say, my test is coming up next Monday, can you give me the car? You bring them out for a lesson, you find they're absolutely no better than they were 12 weeks ago. So it's very and hard. And is, kind of is that because they didn't get the experience that they needed? Yeah, but it's very hard to gauge when I tell them day one, you know, yeah, go ahead and book a test because of the long delay. In England, I can get a test for somebody today, one day. One day. One day. And we've done it. We've done it. I mean, we're not talking tens, or we're talking thousands. Since 2002, we have had more people doing their test on the same day as they, you know, they, they come to a particular standard. One God, day. God, we can only dream, we can only dream of, that, of that here. So, and I like, I like your theory of the pre-vetting. And then once they're pre-vetted and the instructor says, yes, this person is driving safely, you're then saying they could be allowed to drive unaccompanied in that period of whatever it is between 10 and 15 weeks yeah, to mean, take the would, test. Yeah, that would free up the, 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 the situation. Uh, and it, all, it also would give them the practice. Absolutely, absolutely. You see, the problem, uh, Patricia, if I don't mind saying this, is the amendments and alterations and the long delays in the test, they should have all been blitzed first, before this law came in, uh, enforcing the removal of people's cars for driving unaccompanied. You know, it's like the cart before the horse. So what something has to be done. It can't go on the way it is. You know, I mean, as you know yourself, there's 10,000 people in Cork waiting to do the driving tests. Only 13 testers. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the, I mean, that's you know, the first problem, isn't it? Yeah, we that, need, that's the first problem. Do we need more centres as well as more testers? Of course, well, that would yeah. be the, the easiest solution. Open up more centres. Open up more centres. I mean, I think uh, one of the Sinn Féin councils mentioned sometime during the week that, in theory, with the amount of people who are doing the test, we need another 151 testers. 
And I mean, people pay. Is it 85 euro to take this? Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, now, you're drawing me out. Another thing that I'm going to hear for the minute is the, the fact that people are compelled to take a test on the, before they get the third provisional. Why not just give people a provisional licence for five years? And no, no restriction on it. And let them drive without... No, 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 no not let them drive at all. Okay. But the point is that they, they, there's, there's, it's a farcical rule that uh, before you get your third provisional licence, you've got to pay for a test. You've got to book a test. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're now holding up another slot. Yeah. There may be housewives not making women any kind of scapegoat, but there may be housewives who maybe just want to go out with their husband on a, a Sunday for a drive, do an hour lesson here. They might have no interest in doing a test for months, years, and yet they're compelled to pay 85 quid for a test that they have no notion of doing. Probably couldn't pass anyway, you know? And then that licence lasts, what, is it two years? That lasts two years, yeah. Two years, yeah, OK. Yeah. Is it a money-making racket? Oh, there's no question about it. Yeah. There's no question about yeah. it. I mean, some examiners, you know, I've been at test centres where the examiners have on average seven tests a day and they find they've done two because the other five didn't turn just up. Don't, yeah, just don't. And that's frustrating on people who are desperately trying to oh, get uh, a test. The, it, it's come up actually when I mentioned that you were going to be joining us on the programme. A couple of people have mentioned it. The 12 compulsory lessons, the EDT, EDT programme. Yeah. Is that making for better drivers? None whatsoever. Why? In fact, whoever, whoever designed that uh, just didn't think it through at all. First of all, there's 12 lessons in it, okay? You take lesson five and lesson nine, they're exactly the same. They didn't even have the, the, the logic to work out that we make number nine different to number five. Changing direction is number five, changing direction is number nine. And then you get the 12th one is nighttime driving. The EDT book doesn't cover roundabouts, it doesn't cover dual carriageways, it doesn't cover manoeuvres, nothing. People but. It's like a grand handy way of making money if I, as an instructor, decide, oh, God, I'm going to sit down here and I'm going to take 450 quid off everyone and to hell with them, you know? So it doesn't... But does it teach somebody to drive? No, no not in the slightest. So do they need to take extra lessons then? Pardon? Do they need to take extra lessons? Well, what, no, you see, it's like... Uh, we were joked about this the other day. It's like walking into a shoe shop and saying, I need to buy a pair of shoes. It doesn't matter what size, just give me a pair of shoes. One you know, size doesn't yeah. fit all. So the point yeah. is that I have 30% of my students would be from, say, the farming community who probably could drive as good as you or I. You know, because they, they've been driving tractors from a young age. Yeah. quads, yeah. all that type of thing. Yeah. Right? So they don't need 12 lessons. Four or five lessons with a good instructor should get them to drive safely for the rest of their lives. Then you have the opposite side where you have somebody who has no facility, never driven in their lives, and they start at naught. After 12 lessons, they could not conceivably be ready for test. But because of the way it's marketed, they think they are. And they say, oh, if I've done my 12 lessons, I'll book my test. And there's no way they're ready for test. Not a ghost of a chance. Have you told people you're not ready for your oh, test? Oh, I have, yeah. Do I, they I, listen? A girl came to me the other day. She, she had, her instructor had signed off the last two lessons for her on the EDT. She came to me and she said, look, will you sign off the last two for me? And I said, fine. I said, I signed off the last two for you. But on the cover page, I put... Please do not book a test. You are nowhere near ready. Did she, what did she say to you? She said, well, she said, I've done my 12 lessons. Why can I not do it? I said, you can do your test. I said, you can go in your own car. You're not getting my car. I said, there's no way I'm going to put my name to you passing or doing a test because you're not ready. And she just, you know, disagreed with me, obviously. They think it's like I, some of the singers that go on X Factor. They, they don't understand because mm. they don't know what the standard is. As far as they're concerned, I can sit into a car, I can go from here up to the top of the road, and I'm a driver. 
I'm, I'm very interested to hear you giving out about the, the 12 lessons because that's kind of shooting yourself in the foot because oh, it's, absolutely. It's, it's you, it's, it's the driving instructor gets paid to do those yeah. lessons. That's, yeah. that's the point. But, you know, I, I, I visited um, uh, an uncle of mine who was quite elderly recently in a different area in not nowhere near Munster at all. And a guy came to me and he said, look, he said, uh, uh, what do you charge for DDT lessons? And I said, it varies. I said, you know, and we do a block of about 290 quid. And he said, well, he said, would you believe there's a girl here charging 44 per lesson? You know? Wow, that's expensive, isn't it? It's expensive, yeah. You know? So, so there's no set price on it? It's no, 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 no. She's individual. charging 525 quid or something. And she, I mean, you know, she, if she, she turned out flipping five or six of them a week, she should be happy out. Uh, somebody says, hi Patricia, I am that humble housewife who drives and guess what, I passed my test the first time so I am not impressed by that instructor saying us housewives uh, do not pass our tests. <laughs> okay. I, did, I did put in a little caveat uh, uh, when I spoke about it. Not all, not all. Alright, Mary says, would you please ask your guest, our guest by the way is driving instructor Kahalo Kini, um, about the learners that he teaches to drive. Do many of them read the rules of the road book? Does he find that they don't know enough about the actual rules of the road before they get behind the wheel of a car? Um, and, no, most of them, I, I always recommend they read it. And I think, you know, every lesson or so, I'll fire a question or two at them based on the thing. And then, you know, I certainly bring them up to speed if they haven't read it themselves. The road, I don't think that's an issue. The rules of the road is not, it's not particularly an issue. It's, it's uh, the, you know, first of all, it's the waiting time is, is the big problem. And there are genuine people out there, certainly in rural, rural Ireland, who've got jobs with this old scheme and they use their car to get to that job now all of a sudden they run losing their car so something has to be done it, it has to change OK and I'm back to the 52% who failed uh, last year as a driving instructor and I, I, you touched on the fact that when you're hanging around outside the test centre with the other driving instructors and you're all chatting to each other do you as instructors do you get a chance to listen in on the test debrief no. to find out why no. someone failed no. would that not help? But that's uh, if you, uh, I mentioned that in my letter if you saw it it, that that is very important uh, to to me. That would be an absolutely paramount thing in England. The, inst- the instructor can sit in the back of the car on the test. Wow! Yeah, and the reason for that logically is that if a student does make a mistake, you can say to them, "Do you remember that traffic light? You you know you encroached on the roundabout, or you did whatever." And you can say, "Look, we'll work on that for the next lesson or the next test." But there are some people, and this is absolutely genuine. And she may even ring you in because I know she's listening. There was a girl recently who did a test. And uh, she, she did her, her driving test. She failed, and she didn't know for sure what she'd failed on. And she asked the examiner, could he clarify? And what he said to her, he says, I'm not your instructor. Whoa. You know? Whoa. And the the RSA aimed to have a national average waiting time for a driving test of no longer than 10 weeks. You believe we can even do better than that? Oh, my God, Patricia, in England today, two weeks would be an awful lot. Because then, as an instructor, I can predict whether this person is going to make it to test standard in the time. Yeah. It can be done. It can be done. If, 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 if there's a will. If there's a will. And get rid of this, this, this uh, compulsory um, test booking on a third provisional. That has to go. All right. Okay. Good words. Uh, I think I think you've come up with a really sensible solution. Have you sent any of your suggestions on to the RSA, by the way? I have. Oh, you I have, okay. I, have. I sent it to the minister, but oh, yeah. I did that again four years ago, actually, quite ironically, immediately after the Clancy thing, because there was also another accident in the country, I won't name, where young learner drivers were involved in the fatality. 
and um, I just thought, look, this has to change. But sure, that's four years ago, and nothing has changed, you know. The other thing, Patricia, it has to be brought into the schools. Start, start teaching them. But just, just on the whole, and not in particular, not per se the Clancy Amendment, but the whole thing about the Lord of Drivers being accompanied. Now, before we get to the, the pre-vetting stage that you're talking about, are you, do you agree that a learner driver should have a qualified driver with them all the time? A learner driver, yes. But when they come to a certain standard, when they have, you know, uh, as, as I say, a standard whereby they, they've been then driving, they've done their lessons, they're, you know, they're assessed properly, then they could, I, I feel, you know, if it, if it helped, they could certainly drive independently only for the short period that they have their test booked and actually take their test. And that has to be signed off by an it instructor, as you say. Yeah, all right. Okay. All right. Uh, listen, Carl, um, great to chat to you. Thank you for that. No bother. Thank and you uh, thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, driving instructor uh, Carl uh, O'Keeney. He is a driving instructor in uh, care. Um, someone by by WhatsApp says, at long last, there's somebody who thinks the same way as I do, that the compulsory lessons are a waste of time. My daughter had the 12 lessons and she still failed her test. I've been out with her after her 12 lessons and was gobsmacked at the things she had been taught. Her tester, for example, signed off on the nighttime lesson without her ever doing it. I didn't realise there was a nighttime lesson part of the 12 lessons, even though a nighttime driving at night will never come up in a test because all the tests are done during daylight hours. This is the Court Today replay on C103. I will get back to you. I can see some comments and texts coming in about driving life, the driving test and instructors, etc. And the chat that we had with uh, Carl, a driving instructor. And I will get back to them. But I want to move on for a moment because Joseph Byrne of Joseph's Hair Salon in Glasheen is once again collecting Easter eggs for the needy. And he joins me uh, to tell us what he's, what, what's happening this year. Um, hi, Joseph. Good morning, Patricia. How you're, are you? I'm, I'm very well. How is everybody at Joseph's Hair Salon in oh, Glasheen? Very, very busy today. I just left one of my ladies here and <laughs> she... come and, and take your call. Friday's always the busy oh, day the for the hairdressers. Every day's busy. At is it? Every day's an adventure. At is it? Patricia, you'll have to come out. <laughs> I will indeed. I will indeed. Now, you did a similar collection last year of Easter eggs. Tell me how that came about and how it went last year. Well, I suppose I was thinking... Patricia, last year about Easter eggs and things, I said, wouldn't it nice now to do something for people that need them, people that maybe wouldn't afford them, people in doorways, things like that. Um, Caffeine Penny Dinners, Edel House, Coon Lee House, um, kids that wouldn't normally maybe get a, a lot of Easter eggs. So I just came up with the idea and it escalated and ended up getting about a thousand Easter eggs. <laughs> it was amazing. And there were actually people in doorways, someone was telling me, which with Easter eggs. Uh-huh. And I, I think the nice thing about it, Patricia, was all getting them on Easter morning or the Saturday night was nice, you know what I mean? Were and you expecting to get that many? Not at all, no. I had a set full of them. <laughs> Absolutely not. And But it was great to distribute them and great to see them going to the people that I wanted them to go to. You know what I mean? They come, I deliver them. It's fantastic. And did you do the delivery on Christmas on Easter Sunday? We did some, and then I gave them some to people that would be going out doing runs on on Easter Sunday and on the week of that weekend to go out and do the runs and to give these eggs, which was fantastic. Do you know, it's just a small thing, Patricia. I know. Just, you know, everybody know. likes a, a bar of chocolate or an Easter egg. Easter, it's, it's a homely thing to me. I think, you know, we all get Easter egg kids and things. 
and it's just up my home, Lee, and, you know, it's just say, God, we got an Easter egg too, it's nice, you know. And there and are, there are some, but there are some children who, oh, God, wo- who won't get an Easter egg. Oh, there is, of course, yeah. There is people that won't get Easter eggs. An Easter egg would be luxury. But, Patricia, I, just to change the subject, if you don't mind for a second, I'm doing something this and now that I'm talking to, and um, for the communities, I'm trying to get communing kids in as well this year okay. from disadvantaged situations and do their hair. These are the little girls. Little girls get their curls, get whatever on yeah. tape. Because I want them to be in, in with um, their friends from the school or whatever, but obviously they won't be paying, but their friends won't know that. Yeah. But the only thing I'm going to ask, Patricia, if there's anybody out there that can give us a hand, because you know, we're fairly booked out for our own clients and trying to do this as well, so I would appreciate it. We could get a few stylists in just for an hour or two on the dates. We what? Have. What's the dates? Don't know yet. Or no okay. Yet. Different dates. I'm just waiting for for confirmation. Okay. Now they're, the, they're usually in May, isn't it? May. Yeah, we're one on the eighteenth, and I think we're one sometime then again because the eighteenth is nearly booked out. But if I did take on a few orders, if there's someone out there that'd be willing to come in and give us a hand to a few GHD calls, I just want to make a special day for. I know. I know. And you, are you talking like, a couple of hours in the morning before they head to the church? Hours, isn't it? So probably yeah. early in the morning. And, you know, there might be some people out there walking part and we'd be delighted to come in and do, you know. Yeah, because I'm straight um, away thinking Saturday's a busy day for most hairdressers. So what we're looking at, maybe retired hairdressers. Um, exactly, people, yeah. Maybe some hairdressers that are out on maternity leave. They're not at work yeah. full time. As you say, some that are working part time. Perfect, Patricia. That yeah. would be ideal. That's what I'd be looking for. Because I, I don't know how many is going to be, love it. But I'd like to be, and if there's anybody out there that's listening that's really in a situation that she's a lovely daughter to get her hair done, and they can give me a buzz, but give me a buzz on the mobile, which she has. You know okay, I mean? because we know Holy Communion, what an expensive day it can be. And everybody wants to make, particularly the little girls, they want to make them feel as special as possible. And getting the hairs done is very much part of the day, isn't it? Very much. They get their GHD calls and get up on one side. And it's lovely. And they're in the salon, they're in a nice atmosphere. And they're mixing with other kids. It's all very, very normal and they don't know the situation and the other kids don't know the situation. No, no. Oh, and I think no. it just makes it a bit special. It's like what we do for Christmas with the homeless and things. It's, it's, you know, it's. I just want to get into this side of now for communes and confirmations. I have a few already booked in for confirmations and that wouldn't have the money to get something done. You know well what done. I mean? Well done. You're, 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 you're an incredible guy and you have a great bunch working with you. Patricia, that is. It's the crowd I have with the staff are amazing but also and people, the generosity of customers dropping in Easter eggs. You know, a woman came in the other day, she left me 20 years to buy Easter eggs. You know, <laughs> I'll decide what to do with that 20 years, but it goes to the right situation, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it's brilliant, I know it. Jesus, it's like Christmas all over again, and Easter's very And have, have you the space to store a thousand Easter eggs? We have a big shade outside, inside of the house. <laughs> but this year now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to distribute them a bit earlier. Okay, yeah, so you Get won't, the you won't be falling over these. Around. Yeah. Oh, and the temptation, mother of God. Are you, are, you off the, are, you, are you off the sweets for Lent? I'm off everything because my birthday last week, I was after losing um, £8 and I say I'm after putting on 10 I went crazy. <laughs> but you know what, what happens too, Patricia? A few of the shops gave me broken Easter eggs, which is a very good idea. Okay. As well, you know, the ones that were, the ones guy gave me a whole trolley of broken Easter eggs because they said they weren't, they weren't going to be sold until, you know, they break. Anyway, in a few minutes when you take them home. So. And the chocolate's perfect. 
works out chocolate as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. Even and, and and producer, the community thing is a big thing for me this I year. Know. So, you know, it's my first year trying it, so I hope it'll work out. Okay, and people can, we, we we have your mobile number. People can call in in person to you. You also have your Facebook page. We have, yeah. And if somebody wants to have a chat about community, just to ring me themselves because yeah. I don't be booking in people and don't know the situation. I know, you know what I, mean? I know. And on the day, I want it to be perfect, so... Well, good luck with that and good luck with your Easter egg. I was going to say Easter egg hunt, your Easter egg collection. And uh, as always, a pleasure to talk to you, uh, Joseph. Keep up the great work. We will indeed. God bless. Mind yourself. Bye bye. Uh, He's a great man. Uh, Joseph's Hair Salon in Glasheen. If you want to donate an Easter egg. And you know, we're back again as we are every single year with the Easter eggs, the supermarkets. They get they get to the stage where they're nearly giving them away. There are so many offers on. I remember last year because I was in a, a, a I had to buy a lot of Easter eggs last year, I, I, more than I normally do. But there was a family thing going on, and there was going to be a lot of children around, so I had to buy a lot of Easter eggs. And I was uh, was watching all the different offers that were on. Would I get three there? Would I? And every time I'd say, God, they'll never go any cheaper than that. I'd buy some Easter eggs, and then lo and behold, another supermarket would come up with another one. And I mean, they really are nearly. There was a supermarket last week and were they doing five five for a fiver like it was that's a euro an easter egg it's just it's incredible Uh, and yet I mark my words with all of the easter eggs that are there and all of the offers that that are there and I remember this happened last year I was out on Easter Saturday getting, you know, the last bits and pieces that you need for the for the dinner on Easter Sunday, the, the cream and the, you know, the trimmings. And I was in a supermarket that had been stocked to the floor to ceiling in Easter eggs in the weeks leading up to Easter. And I overheard a gentleman saying, where are your Easter eggs? And the girl in the supermarket nearly laughed at him and said, we don't have any left. And he goes, well, tomorrow's Easter Sunday. And she said, yeah, they've been on sale for weeks. And he was quite taken aback and was almost starting to get a bit annoyed with the girl to say, you've sold out all the Easter eggs. Now, they had a couple of the very expensive ones, but he wasn't looking for the very, very uh, expensive ones. So, but yeah, but the offers are already starting. And if you would like to contribute to Joseph and what he's doing to collect Easter eggs for the needy at Christmas, as he says, Edel House, Kun Lee, he gives them to Cope, Cork Penny Dinners, to St Vincent de Paul and, and even out and about working with people who are going to uh, he'll, they'll go out on the streets on Easter Sunday and to people inside and doorways and give them an Easter egg just to give them a little bit of cheer uh, for the time of year You're listening to Cork Today on Replay Phone and text lines are currently It's that time of the year Your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Closed. I want to give a quick mention to some Special Olympians who are returning home. They're all on planes uh, winging their way back from Abu Dhabi and the Irish Special Olympics team has done this country proud. The amount of medals that they are flying back with is incredible. But locally there's a couple of welcome home gatherings uh, arranged. There's one for example at the Arches Bar in Mallow this evening. Quarter to six they're expecting the athletes from the Special Olympics World Summer Games that were held in Abu Dhabi. Uh, that's when they're expecting them back into Mallow. And there's going to be a huge welcome back for James Hunter from Mallow because James won bronze at the game. All a welcome. If you're going along to the Arches in Mallow this evening, would you bring your Irish flags please they're trying to generate as much colour and excitement as possible and I've also from that's from North Cork in West Cork the people of Clonakilty are being encouraged to come out in huge numbers tomorrow Saturday afternoon to welcome home local Special Olympics athletes Aoife McMahon now Aoife won gold for Ireland in table tennis at the Special Olympic World Games and people are asked to assemble a fax bridge roundabout that's near Scali Super Value at about a quarter to three uh, tomorrow afternoon and then at three o'clock sharp Aoife will be arriving no doubt with her medal very proudly around her neck in an open top car and then there'll be a parade led by a piper through the town uh, centre and it will uh, to head to Emmett uh, Square so congratulations that's Aoife McMahon and that's happening in Clonakilty tomorrow now some of your calls and texts coming in someone says please withhold my name which is fine says hi Patricia could you please air if anybody else has heard of imagine.ie they're a broadband provider. A salesman called to our door yesterday. The service sounds just what we need. He explained everything very well and arranged that we take a follow-up telephone call on Monday. There was two vans, salespeople covering the area, the area being Barry Row in West Cork. We hear about so many scams. I'm just beginning. I just want to check out that everything is above board. We'd love to hear if anybody else is using the service. Now, I'm not using the service, but I'm well aware of Imagine.ie, very reputable company. They're an Irish company and they one of their promises is that they deliver uh, much-needed broadband uh, to homes, businesses and communities across regional and rural Ireland. I think they have about 55, did they, 155 locations already uh, where they've launched their broadband. So yeah, they're a very reputable uh, company. I don't know if people at the Barry Row area our surrounding areas have been using the service or has anybody else used the service and are they finding it a good, reliable broadband, broadband provider that, I think, is what the listener most wants to know. Is it a reliable uh, service, but certainly a very reputable Irish company, imagine.ie. If anyone wants to offer advice there to our listener, please do. 1850 And we get a huge reaction to Cahill 
uh, Carl O'Keeney, our driving instructor who joined us in the last hour. Um, a lot of people very impressed with him. Catherine Domamwe said the man is like a breath of fresh air. It's great to hear somebody talking common sense and that seems to be very much the view of uh, people. I totally agree with your guest Cahal on the programme. Uh, it's a pure money racket. This is the 12 lessons that learner drivers are forced to take. He's dead right. It doesn't cover half enough. And that's coming from a driver that passed their test in the last few months, thanks be to God. I didn't have to wait again until the summer to take another test or maybe even later. And I'm in my 30s, by the way. And I did pass. And I don't know if it was, did you pass first time round? But well done. Great sense of achievement uh, when you pass. But interesting, you've been through the system. And like Carl, you think it's a waste of money. Uh, someone else says, uh, Michael says, hi Patricia. On the driving test, Guy Carl joined you. He's putting forward the idea of pre-assessment his idea of the pre-assessment is good maybe in theory but they have to do compulsory amount of lessons with their instructors so they know how competent their learner drivers are so why are they applying for a test if they're clearly not ready I agree we need a lot more testers you also have young people driving powerful tractors on provisional licences without an accompanying driver or having lessons it's absolutely crazy you'll see them flying around even at night it's crazy stuff says uh, Michael well Carl did say that he's very honest with his learner drivers when they come to him for the 12 lessons that they have to do and he has to sign off on and he's told some of his learner drivers no you are not ready to take the test. Taking the 12 lessons does not make somebody ready. You take the 12 lessons, but then you also need to have, I would certainly think you need to have experience. You need to get out on the road as much as you can. There's nothing like physical driving experience. But some people listening to Cahal seem to think that once I've done my five lessons, that's it. I'm, I'm fine. I'll take off and I'll be able to drive and I'll, I'll fly through the test. And they're not flying through the test and 52% are failing. And that's the, the problem. They're not listening to all of their driving instructors. Another listener who doesn't want her name read out, which is fine, says, Patricia, lovely to hear the driving instructor's point of view on your programme today. He expressed beautifully what needed to be said. They are under enormous pressure at the moment. My husband is going to England for the weekend. This will be, oh, obviously her husband's a driving instructor. This will be his first days off since Christmas. He puts enormous effort into getting drivers up to the standard that they, that he need, that they need. He forms relationships with these people. They're not just names or numbers to him. It's about time the government listened to what the instructors have to say. Even trying to find places to take students to learn safely is becoming a struggle. Nobody wants learner drivers on their housing estates. Instructors are now being chased away from church car parks so there are fewer and fewer places for them to safely meet with students. The impatience that's shown to learner drivers on our roads is absolutely disgraceful. People forget that they once were learner drivers too. 
It's time to change the whole thinking behind learning to drive. The following is what I think are needed. We need safer places to learn. We need more test locations. We need revised content of the EDT. They're the 12 compulsory lessons. Testers should have a minimum number of years as instructors with intensive training that reflects their position of responsibility. Very kind regards. And that's from a wife of a driving instructor. And I hope your hobby has a lovely weekend away and a nice little bit of a break. And another texter says, I took a test last week and uh, failed. Ah, how unfortunate. The tester would not let me leave my dash camera up. I felt for fear of being called out wrong when he failed me. My car and my camera. He refused to do the test until I had the dash cam taken down or he said he would fail me before we even began the test. Now I've no licence. I can't get to work till I can drive. So it's going to cost the government because I now have to sign on and they're going to have to pay me dole payments while I wait for a new test. And that could be another 10 weeks and dare I say if you're lucky to get it in another 10 weeks. So I'm going to be on the dole. Um, develops tech living in rural Ireland. I'm sorry, I, um, that's obviously come out spell check wrong. Anyway, my heart goes out to you. My sympathies go out to you. There's, there's nothing worse. Uh, a good driving instructor, somebody like Carl, to make sure that you are ready. See, sometimes as well, you can have somebody ready to do the test and nerves can take over. How often have we heard of people say that they... You know, they were ready. Their instructor felt they were ready and then nerves just let them down on the day. That can be a really tricky uh, and, and I don't know if there's any simple solution to getting over the nerves that take over on the day. And uh, Catherine says, Hi Trish, your chat with the driving instructor was so good. He was so honest. More importantly, what he said made such great sense. It was great listening. So says uh, Catherine. Uh, thank you for that. 1850 And just on gambling, when we spoke about gambling earlier on in the programme, Margaret and Tyler says, Patricia, what are your views and listeners' views on children playing bingo. It makes my blood boil. I know we looked into that before and technically they're not allowed to play. They're certainly not allowed to play for money. I know the last time we did it we had a lot of grandparents coming out saying that they bring grandchildren to bingo with them and a lot of people were very much in favour of having children go along to bingo. So you could be out on a limb on your own, Margaret, as somebody who's against it. But we'll give it out and see what other people feel. Children being allowed to go to bingo, good or a bad idea. And here's a word, a cautionary word of warning for people who are gambling online and have an account with, you know, the Paddy Power, uh, the Boils and all of the different crowd that you can have. You open up an account online and you gamble online. Don contacted us from the city. He's a homeowner. And a few years ago, he wanted to do, to do, to buy a house. He wanted to do a do me up house, obviously as an investment. So it was a very rundown house and it was up on the market for €80,000. He had already savings of €50,000. So he just needed a loan of 30000 He went to the bank thinking there'd be no problem here at all. He was refused and the reason he was refused was because of erratic withdrawals from his account. When he asked what they were talking about, he had online gambling on his bank account. Now he says he, he doesn't have a gambling problem. It's just an interest. It's kind of a hobby for him. But he kind of got a shock he got turned down for a loan, a small enough loan when you think of 
the size of mortgages people go for. So uh, he uh, he was listening with interest, obviously, to us talking about gambling today. Don says young people need to be very aware of the problems that they are storing up for the future. They may have problems getting a mortgage or a loan from a bank if a bank can clearly see on their bank account that they have an online banking an online gambling account. Also, casinos opening in towns, casinos and arcades. They have signs up saying maximum payment from the machine is 50 cents. It's their way of covering themselves. Well, that's one of the archaic laws that needs to be changed. Those laws date back, I think, back to the 1950s when that was the maximum amount that could be paid out from a machine. So, yes, they are covering themselves by saying that. But then I'm assuming that's not the case. You can, you're not going to be playing if all you can win is uh, 50 cent. I'm, ass- I'm assuming they get around it some other way. 1850-333-103. John Paul, taking your calls. If you want to text or WhatsApp, you can 0862-103-103. The C103 Cork Diary. With now, Cork County Council. Supporting businesses. Supporting communities. Serving Cork. Visit Cork Coke. And needless to say, if there's a coffee morning, coffee day going on in your area for the Irish Cancer Society, please support. But other events happening today, the Glow fun run in Skibbereen is taking place uh, tonight at 8.15 that was deferred from last week the Parents Association of Bali Vagan National School in Coachford are hosting a talk by international experts tonight at half past seven in Ahina GAA Hall. Topics covered will include concussion on pitch head injuries Heart Health uh, plus more parents, players and coaches very welcome to attend. Tickets available at the door. A music night in the Corbett Court in Grenat tonight. Music by Eugene Harrington. That starts at nine with proceeds going to Marymount Hospice. Child GAA have a fundraising night tonight. Tickets at €25 with all proceeds going to the redevelopment of the training fields. A book launch from Cowpath to the Flyer 9. Detailing the history of Dermot O'Mahuna's GAA Club will be held tonight at 8 o'clock in Castle Kenna Hall. And the Onabui Men's Shed and Ballygarvan History Society have a fundraising table quiz in Bridie's Bar in Ballygarvan. That's tonight at 8. Anglesburg Drama Group are presenting the Kings of Kilbert High Road. That's on tonight. It runs through across the weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, 8 o'clock each night. And Clyder Rover Lotto Draw, Derry Murphy's Bar, Ballinamona. Tonight they've got a jackpot of €12,500. In Cork, farming is a vital part of who we are. That's why C103 brings you Farm Talk with John O'Connor Saturdays at 10am and Wednesdays at 10pm Why should farmers have their silage tested? Getting silage tested is so important The quality of the silage will affect how cows are fed the dry period and post-calving Turn on Farm Talk with Dairy Gold Agribusiness for quality feed expert service and support you can trust Only on C103 Now today is a very important day for the Irish Cancer Society as it's Daffodil Day and there is hardly a family in this country that hasn't been touched in some way by cancer so needless to say we're encouraging everyone to please be as generous as possible with the thousands of volunteers who are out on the streets all over the country but especially here in Cork City and uh, County. To share her cancer story I'm joined by Rose Finn who has also been a volunteer with the Irish Cancer Society for the last 30 years. Uh, Good afternoon to you, Rose. Good afternoon, And, and, and you're very welcome. So, firstly, talk to me about your volunteering. When and why did you start to volunteer with the Irish Cancer Society? Oh, gosh, I tell you, well, Daffodil Day started, I think now, 
was 31, 32 years ago. That's right, right? yeah. Now, I missed the first one, but a friend of mine from Yall got involved. So the following year, she actually invited me down to Yall to the meeting, and I just got hooped completely. So I started in Middleton, I'd say, it's either my 30 or my 31st year doing Daffodil Day. And, and is it something you've always enjoyed doing? Loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. And then we have a strong family history of cancer, of course. My mom had developed breast cancer actually around the same age as me, the age of 42. Wow. And then, unfortunately, I lost my sister at the age of 46 to ovarian cancer. Oh, my God. Have, have yeah, you, have, yeah. do, do you carry the BRCA gene? No. We don't. No, no, we no. Di- And funny that my sister that died, her daughter, Karen, right, was diagnosed last year with breast cancer. But we're not carrying the gene and it's kind of baffling them. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so so talk to me, for somebody then who was very involved in the Irish Cancer uh, yeah. Society, did your own diagnosis come as a complete shock? It did, because I tell you, for years I was saying, uh, me doing all this work now, voluntary work for the Irish Cancer Society, so that's my insurance policy. Exactly. I won't develop it. Yeah. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Did you have symptoms or was it through breast check? Nothing, nothing, nothing. I used to attend my gynecologist, David Carr, every year. And he turned around to me one day and he said, look, my birthday was coming up. And he said, would you give yourself an early birthday present and go and get a mammogram? And I said, yeah, no, I think I was about 45 at that stage. So every year I went for my mammogram and it was during a routine mammogram that they picked up that I had the tumour in my right breast. My God, weren't you lucky? Absolutely haunted. You see, that's the importance of early detection. You know, because now, thank God, I am 100%. Yeah. And how long long ago did you have it? Uh, 2008. 2008. Okay, so you're you're over 10 years. I'm over the 10 years now, yeah, yeah, and feeling fantastic. So, so and when people get called for their breast check, for their mammogram, you know, you hear people saying, oh God, I hate the idea of doing that. I hate That's going. right. Or Just I won't do it. Go they're and get mad. it done. They're mad. Go and get it done. All it takes is about 15 minutes. It's a small bit, just a small bit uncomfortable, but it'll save life. You know, so, the early detection. So what was treatment like? Treatment was, uh, chemo was very severe, right? It didn't like me and I certainly didn't like it. But look, it was a three-week cycle. I was bad for about 10 days. Then I was good and then it started all over again. You know, but I mean, I I, got, I had six sessions of it. Um, it was fine. It, it, I got over it. It actually did the job that it was supposed to do. So um, the radiotherapy then was that was grand. That was, I had to go to COH for that. And that was five days a week for seven weeks. But that was fine. You're only tired you're only a little bit tired after the radiotherapy. Did you have a mastectomy? I no, I had a lumpectomy. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you you you've, you've been lucky in many ways that it was found in time. Absolutely. I was extremely lucky. Extremely lucky because I'd say if I hadn't gone for those if Dr. Cora hadn't told me to go and have the mammogram, see I wouldn't have detected it wouldn't have been picked up because I'd no lump. I had I felt no lump. It was actually hidden. At yeah. the back of my breast, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and then the mammogram that they they detected. It. And then what? Uh, God forbid, could have happened you when exactly. when you would have got symptoms. It was too late. It, it would have been too late. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I was stage two, but it, it certainly could have gone to a stage four, and then I would have been unlucky. You know, D- does but having it, cancer change you in any way? Your your outlook it on does, life? Yeah. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, like I work full time, right? I work thirty seven and a half hours 
a week. And I am so glad to be able to get up in the morning and do that. You work, did some of you work in Marks and Spencers? I work in Marks, I do in Patrick Street, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, they were fantastic to me when I was going through my cancer journey. And is that important to have that kind of support? Absolutely, 100%. 100%. I had fantastic backing from my colleagues in Marks, right, from the management in Marks and my own circle of friends. They were absolutely super and that means so much to you. But are there days when you just don't want to talk to anyone? Uh, no, that thank God that never happened. To me. No, <laughs> no, thank God. <laughs> I'm good at talking. <laughs> yeah. So no, 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 no. It's actually, and I mean, I didn't. I certainly didn't go into bed and pull the duvet over my head and say that's it. Not at all. I got up every morning, and I mean, I did whatever I had to do. No, I was out of work for twelve months. Sorry. Yeah. You know, but then I didn't stay in the bed. I, I wasn't. I never felt sorry for myself. The reason too being, my first granddaughter was born in June. And so she was only three months old. So I had certainly had that to live for as well. And I think, I think that really helped me. Did you lose your hair? I'd, oh, Christ, I did. I did yeah. Sorry, I did. I now did that's, yeah. I, I think for us women, that's, yeah. that's a hard thing. It is. That was, being honest with you, that's the worst thing. Because I remember, now I went up to Versace in Kinsale Road, Roundhouse, and the girls, they were absolutely brilliant. So they shaved my head, right? They put on the wig and... Uh, they, they were they were just outstanding, but it, it was the most dramatic thing for you. I, mean, I couldn't look at my bald head for six weeks. I just couldn't. I'd come away from the mirror, put on the wig, go back to the mirror, and fix it. You know, I just couldn't do it. It, it was it was devastating. Yeah, I was listening to, and and sadly, we've lost her young Laura Brennan, the That's young right. woman who died That's of cervical right. cancer. Yes. Who the one yeah. is promoting H. PV, anyone out That's there, right. get yeah, the HPV yeah, vaccine. And yeah. bless her heart, she said the same thing. She didn't want to look in the mirror and no. see cancer looking back at her. Yeah, exactly. So the wig exactly. went on. Yeah. The, wig the wig went, went on. on. Without looking in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is, and it was very sad about poor Laura. I mean, it's 26 years of age. She you saved know. so many lives, though, she in did. her short she life. She did, and yeah. I think she will save more lives. Yeah, know, even she will. though she's gone from us now, like, but she will. She, she's actually, after educating at parents yeah. about the vaccine. So hopefully, hopefully they will. Okay, and I think your chat today will save people, Rose, because anyone yes. who is listening to this who was meant to go for a mammogram is about yeah. to go and was, oh, I don't know about that. Oh, there will be yeah. people who will listen to this and go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely, uh, 100%. Okay, and for to get people to donate to Daffodil Day, uh, Rose, what would you say to people? Get out. I mean, Cork is flooded with it. I'm down in Middleton. Middleton is flooded with that. <laughs> There's people everywhere. Now, and it's going very well. Is it? It's, it's going, I'm in Middleton now, yeah, and it is going extremely well. And I know the girls in Carrick too, they're doing a huge coffee morning for me in the community centre. The St. Al's School in the college in Carrick too, they're actually out in the street in Carrick too. So it's a buzz. It's a buzz. And Middleton is flooded with them. So hopefully we will have a good day. Now, and the rain, it's, it's kind of spitting rain there now at the minute, but like it, it's not putting anybody off. And the afternoon, because the afternoon is going to get brighter, rain's going to disappear, is, sun's yeah, going to yeah. shine. We might even see a bit of sun, like yeah. yeah. So I mean, we're here, we're staying here until six o'clock this evening. So oh, well done. We, we started early. We started at eight o'clock this morning. 
So hopefully now, hopefully now she'll be good. And when you buy, if you buy one of the silk daffodils, the pins, wear them because I think it's, oh, it's, it's a pop yes. of colour and it reminds other people for the day if that you'd want to be living on Mars not to know that today not is Daffodil Day. Exactly, exactly. All right, listen, you, yeah, are, you, yeah. you, you're an absolute joy. Uh, continue oh, the great work that you're you. doing and the good health. May we wish you that for, you so for many much. more years to come. And thanks thank for joining so us, Rose. God bless. That is all my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What a lovely lady that is Rose Finn in uh, Middleton uh, with her cancer journey but the importance the absolute importance of a breast uh, check and uh, and for the day that's in it as well let's remember uh, Laura Brennan she actually she's been buried at the weekend or is it or no it's next week it's in into next week I'm sure I read her her funeral arrangements I mean there's just been an outpouring of love and support uh, for Laura just 26 menace in County Clare people may remember having seen her on the Late Late Show she had that gorgeous flaming red hair and so full of life and she just spoke so honestly and so openly she unfortunately was of the generation where the HPV vaccine wasn't available and if she could have received the HPV vaccine if it had been available to her as a teenager she would be alive today and uh, because of her going public I mean she had a terminal diagnosis I mean when she got diagnosed she had uh, cervical cancer stage 2B at the age of 24 she was given a terminal diagnosis at the age of 24 so she spent the last two years of her life getting the message out to people about the, the devastating how devastating cancer is particularly when you get a terminal diagnosis and she wanted to help other young girls she wanted nobody to go through what she was going through she wanted no other family to go through what she uh, was going through and she went public and she was absolutely incredible anywhere I'd seen her being interviewed uh, she was just amazing she was just such an inspiration and she always looked so well I thought that she was going to do it. you know you, you got this feeling going oh come on let there be let there be a cure for this young woman she needs to be alive she's so full of life and unfortunately she passed away a few days ago but since she started her campaign, the uptake of the HPV vaccine had increased by 20% and they were directly attributing, the HSE were directly attributing that to Laura Brennan. So let's remember Laura Brennan and our deepest, deepest sympathies to her uh, family. Uh, 1850 John Paul, taking your calls if you want to text or WhatsApp you can 086 to 103 103 and can I mentioned yesterday a young lad that helped me out when the oil ran out of my car and I was driving and having a clue how to put oil into my car and I was in Formoy and I popped into a garage it was it was McCarthy's Mace Circle K garage in Formoy and I popped in and a lovely young lad and I just asked him as I left after he helped me out what was his name and he said his name was Braden and I mentioned him yesterday by way of saying thank you can I just say a couple of people have sent in uh, texts to say that Braden his surname is Jones because I didn't have his surname so it's Braden Jones was the young lad that helped me out he is a credit to McCarthy's Mace Circle K and to his uh, parents uh, and I'm glad to, that I did get his surname uh, Braden Jones OK let's take a break and we're back going to the movies with Mark The C103 Cork Diary is a free service to help non-profit organisations all over Cork so if you're a community group or a charity that's holding a fundraising event or meeting send us the details 
details at least one week in advance and we'll tell Cork all about it. Email info at c103.ie. The Cork Diary. With Cork County Council. Supporting businesses. Supporting communities. Serving Cork. Visit corkcoco.ie. C103. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. And our movie reviewer Mark Malone joins us by phone today. Good afternoon to you, Mark. Hi, Patricia. You went to see Captain Marvel and then on DVD you took a look at a movie called uh, Overload. But we're going to start with a quick trailer from Captain Marvel. You are the fastest, the strongest, the absolute baddest. And a huge pain in the ass. I get in trouble for that. A lot. Oh, I can see that about you. This Friday. Try to keep up. Witness her story in the making. You think you can find others like her? She might just be the beginning. I'm guessing that's not standard procedure. No, but I enjoyed it. Captain Marvel. We have a female superhero in this one, have we? Uh, we do. Uh, and in fact, uh, Captain, Captain Marvel, down throughout the years in the, in the comics, could uh, have been a man and a woman. Oh. Uh, yeah, but unfortunately, one of the th- sad things, I think, about uh, the, the people who support movies like this and who love movie, movies like this and who love the comics as well, there is a certain section of that population that is a bit misogynist and don't like the fact that Captain Marvel is actually played by a woman. And I think that's a terrible shame because she does very, very well here. Um, the Captain Marvel here is played by uh, Brie Larson, who's a terrific actress. And, and even though, again, some of the uh, reviews to some of her uh, performances in the film, I think, were a bit negative. And I think that was a shame because I think actually think she's very, very good in the film. And you think it was just because she was female? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. It's a terrible pity, you know, yeah. but there is, but as I said, there is a section of that population that come from the comics that actually, you know, give out um, kind of very negative towards a lot of these films, and especially if they involve women, and I think that's a pretty shame. The same happened to the Wonder Woman film. There was, again, a certain section that were very, very negative towards that film, simply because, of course, we had uh, a female superhero, and I think that's, um, and I think that's a terrible that's shame. A shame yeah. But it didn't do any... Um, it didn't hurt the box office for both Wonder Woman and this. I mean, both films have done very well. And in fact, this film is already uh, the highest grossing film of uh, 2019. Um, I didn't particularly like it very much. Okay. I would have liked to have liked it a little bit more because, uh, you know, I do like the Marvel films. I mean, I've liked them pretty much, you know, from the start. I do enjoy them. Do you know my problem with the, the Marvel film, is, uh, though, is that they're all linked in some way. And that's very clever. And you do need some very, very smart and very, very clever people to be able to work stories around each and every movie. But the problem with that, it reminds me when I first started watching the um, the Harry Potter movies. I used to get very, very confused because so many characters used to come and go. Yeah. And I find that too with the, with the Marvel movies because characters from other movies make an appearance and I'm thinking, I don't, I, I recognise that person, but I don't know where he is in the scheme yeah, of things. Yeah, it's almost like you need to be with somebody. I know certainly for Harry Potter movies, I like to be with somebody who really knows Harry Potter, who can fill me in. Exactly, and yeah. um, luckily I've got the teenager who yeah. knows this world inside out because she too has read the comics. I mean, if she said to me, she said, Dad, you do realise that Captain Marvel has been a man and a woman in the past. It doesn't make any difference, and it shouldn't. And um, the thing about um, this Captain Marvel, uh, it, there was a reference there, of course, for being very, very powerful, and that's really, really important for the next Avengers film. Because there's a bit of a spoiler here, at the very end of the last um, uh, Avengers film, which was highly controversial, um, there is a reference to her 
So we know that she will in some way uh, play a part in the next film. And I think that's possibly part of the problem with this film. It seems to me like they, they worked on it very, very quickly. It's almost like they thought, right, we've got to have her involved because she can, of course, warp time. And that's very, very important to the next story of the, of the, of the next Avengers film because she is hugely, hugely powerful. And the thing is, is that you get the impression that it was all done really, really quickly and fast. And I think that's a terrible pity. And because of that, I think the pacing of the film is a little bit kind of disappointing. That doesn't mean to say that, uh, you know, there isn't enough to enjoy here. I just found it incredibly complicated. 20 minutes, in, the first 20 minutes is basically them telling you her story and where and why she is where she is right now. And 20 minutes in, I turned to the teenager and said, do you know what's going on? She <laughs> went, yeah, of course. And I was like, oh, I just had no idea. Apparently, uh, she plays uh, Captain uh, America is this character called Carol, uh, Carol Danvers. And she is an Air Force pilot. And um, she crashes this experimental aircraft. When she wakes up, she doesn't know who she is. But she is discovered by a group called the Kree, who then train her as a member of their elite Star Force military. So then while being chased by the, the Skrulls, grown men and women have written this, uh, she falls to Earth. And then she falls actually onto a Blockbusters video uh, building. And she then realizes that she's in the 90s. And there she meets up with Nick Fury, played once again by uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Now, because the film, of course, is filmed in the 90s, then Samuel L. Jackson, of course, has to look 25 years younger. And they use that computer wizardry that they used with uh, Kurt Russell and Guardians of the Galaxy to make him look 25 years younger. And it is quite extraordinary. It really is. And at first, of course, you're kind of, you're kind of blown away by it. You're like, that's a really, really young Samuel L. Jackson. And, um, but after a while, you just kind of, you get used to it. And, yeah. uh, it's not it doesn't really become a, um, a point um, after that. My problem with the film is that I just found it, one, incredibly confusing, and two, there are a lot of plot holes. Even I was going, well, well hang on a second, that, that doesn't make any sense. And the pacing, I think, is the problem with the film. It is very uneven, because I think it's one of these movies that have two directors, once again, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. Now, they have made dramas in the past. They've never made an action film. They made a lovely movie with uh, Ryan Gosling called Half Nelson a couple of years ago. And I think that's possibly part of the problem, where they haven't made an action film before so therefore they don't know how to pace it they don't know how you know the film should could should work and i think there are times when it's really dull and it's and other times then of course you know out of nowhere comes a, a pretty good action sequence the action sequences aren't as good as i would like them to be there are a couple that are kind of entertaining but i think brie larson kind of is very good she's got a terrific cat and then called goose who for me who for me was the star of the film and um and i enjoyed the cat but um i just it uh, there's a lot of um, film in dark corners and it wasn't kind of the uh, the exciting kind of movie the kind of Marvel movie that I wanted and when that we've seen before and um, I was hugely confused by the whole thing I was entertained by some of it and bored unfortunately by a lot of it as well Well will, will the, the genuine fans of Captain Marvel do you think they'll love it? I think some of them did um, yeah. I think you know your, your, your general movie goer who loves these movies will, will enjoy it um, I think there are those who are very critical of it um, but I think the film was made for the next Avengers film. That's the impression that I get. And so because of that, I was kind of disappointed by it and just utterly and terribly confused. And is, is that often done, that you're, you're making a movie to set up for the next one almost? Uh, well, that did with Harry Potter. I mean, yeah. I, think, I think like the second last Harry Potter was probably, it was very, very talky uh, because they were setting up for, for, yeah, for the last one. that was and very think, obvious, yeah. And I think that's uh, the case here. But, uh, but Brie Larson is great. Um, ben Middleton, again, is kind of your rent-a-bad guy. He's just the bad guy in every single thing he's ever made. Uh, he's pretty good as well. 
So the performances are really, really good. I mean, I enjoy those. Um, there's a lovely tribute to Stan Lee at the start. And in fact, you know, he always makes an appearance in the film. And this was his last appearance because he passed away last year. And there's a lovely moment where she's uh, walking through a, through a train and he's sitting there and she gives him this lovely smile. Ah. And, and that was a lovely moment. Um, but yeah, I think I think Marvel fans, like the teenager loved it, of course. Yeah. But then she knew what was going on and I didn't. So, and that's what's important, of course. Okay, Mark, uh, Captain Marvel out of 10. I'd give it six. Six out yeah. of 10. Okay, low enough for you. Okay, let's go to Overload. This is a DVD. Uh, is it an action movie? It's Overlord. Overlord, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, it is, yeah, it's, it, yes, and it's, it's an odd film. Um, because I saw the trailer to this some time ago and I just thought what what is this all about um, we knew that it was produced by J.J. Abrahams who was at one stage down to direct this but he in fact didn't and there were speculations that this was part of the Cloverfield franchise uh, there's already been three of those Cloverfield films have you seen any of those? No, no uh, I enjoyed the first two the third one uh, went to Netflix and uh, wasn't very well received um, and so but it isn't it's got nothing at all to do with the Cloverfield uh, franchise it's a very very odd film and when I saw the trailer I did think, well, am I going to enjoy this? Am I going to like this? And it has been very, very well received. Um, and I did enjoy most of it. It's basically, and um, how can I put this? It's a kind of a an, a war Nazi zombie movie. <laughs> and okay. For some reason, uh, directors and filmmakers are obsessed with making Nazi zombie movies because there's already been five of them made. I've never seen any of them because I have no interest in seeing them. So this is the sixth one that I can kind of uh, I can mention. So basically, it's about American soldiers. Uh, it's on the eve of D-Day, and they are sent to uh, Europe um, on a special mission. And whilst they're in the air in their plane, their plane is uh, shot down in what is a very, very well uh, done and, and, and a very, very good sequence. They then find that they become involved in these secret Nazi experiments. So the Nazis are experimenting on people to try and make them kind of super soldiers. But in fact, what it, the reality is, in fact, that what they're actually doing is producing these kind of zombie-like uh, creatures. And so the soldiers find themselves kind of in the midst of all of this. So on the one hand, they've got the Germans trying to kill them. And on the other hand, they've got all these kind of zombies uh, that are also trying to kill them uh, as well. There's an awful lot of CGI here, and I think that's a pity. That was the thing. Even though they, uh, I read that they tried to use kind of practical effects rather than standard CGI effects, I think what they did was mainly kind of things like fire and water, I think. Most of those were real, but the fact is, is that most of the time you just knew they were walking through a green tunnel. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a pity because, you know, I grew up watching kind of war movies like Where Eagles Dare and Kelly's Heroes, you know, movies like that, where everything was practical and everything was real. And, and I suppose in the sense we were kind of spoiled watching with those kind of movies. Uh, and that kind of disappointed me in a sense because because it looks cheap and I think that's a shame I don't know any of the actors I know Kurt Russell's son is in it um, but I don't know any of the actors and I thought the performances were actually quite poor but again I think that's all down again to so much CGI it's very difficult for the actors when you know all they have in front of them is, is, a, is a green screen and that's so, very somebody difficult. said I saw that movie is the most amazing opening scene the opening, that's what I said, the opening scene is extraordinary of, of the planes being attacked. Yeah. And, and, those, and that's very, very good. From then on, it kind of falls into the kind of realm of a kind of a cliched kind of zombie kind of horror movie. And I think that was a, and I think that was a shame. Um, I thought, you know, there are times when it's creepy. There are times when it's kind of scary. And there are times when it's kind of exciting. But there are times, too, when you just think, oh, really? 
Come on, you can do better than that, you know. So in the end, it's a bit mixed. Uh, like Captain Marvel, there's a lot to enjoy, but there's a lot that doesn't really quite work out. Okay, Mark, out of 10? Uh, five. Five out of 10, over Lord. Okay, in, in, enjoy, and we'll talk to you next week, Mark. Okay. Thanks for that. That's Mark Malone, our movie reviewer. And I was doing the Community Diary a couple of minutes ago, and I mentioned a play... The Kings of Kilburn High Road and somebody says, when is that play on, please? It is on, it's the Anglesborough Drama Group are uh, staging it and it is on across this weekend. It opened last night, it's on again tonight, uh, tomorrow night, uh, Friday, Saturday and Sunday with uh, 8 o'clock each night. That's what I leave for today. Thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. We're back with you on Monday morning at 10 o'clock. Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. 